This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week we talk to a former publisher of the Wall Street Journal whose organisation now has journalists running the rule over online news services here and they're even sticking what they call nutrition labels on them to sort the good stuff from the bad. But why exactly? One of the great things about the internet is that everybody can be a publisher. One of the terrible things about the internet is that Anybody can be a publisher. And Gordon Krovitz also hopes that his human journalists can teach AI to sort the fake stuff from the stuff that's fit to print or read before AI gets any more generative. It has the potential to be the most severe source of misinformation the world has ever seen. Also on Media Watch this week, over-egged criticism of not-so-super rugby. Uh, It's not a game I want to watch at the moment when it's like that. But first, claims that we're too trigger-happy to declare emergencies these days and that the media is too triggered by the weather. So you're saying it's just, just, just the usual. How is your community coping with just the usual becoming even more usual? On many occasions, they are totally over it. Uh, the weather is affecting, it's just not the Coromandelists, everybody in the country. Mm. Uh, but yeah, we just have to get up. I mean, it is, it is what it is. There's, um, the, the new normal is uh, fast approaching reality and uh, we just have to get on with it and manage it the best we can and just continue to build resilience. That was the rather weary but also resilient and realistic Thames Valley Coromandel Civil Defence Controller Gary Towler on Morning Report last Wednesday, once again updating RNZ listeners on weather damage and disruption in his area. And while people everywhere are indeed over it, as he said there, so are some parts of the media. But they also have to do their job too, which is being all over the weather when it's serious, as it was again earlier this week in the north. But as Hayden Donnell now reports, some in the media are not too happy about how they're doing it, especially in Auckland, where a precautionary state of emergency was declared this week, specifically citing lessons learned from the two previous disasters in two months earlier this year. Just an update from the Waikato. I've been on the expressway uh, from Cambridge um, all the way up, and the the weather down here is just shocking as well. Um, Starting to flood, guys with no lights on, yeah, it's just diabolical everywhere, so, yeah, just need to be careful. Is there much traffic on the road where you are, Jason? Yeah, I'm in constant traffic, and um, it's the guys are driving, some of them are driving to the conditions, and then uh, you get guys that are just driving like idiots, as per usual. That's a caller to Simon Barnett's show on News Talk ZB, delivering a live update on the state of the roads in Waikato as a storm struck earlier this week. Barnett's on-the-ground news you can use stood in welcome contrast to how some hosts from his network handled the last weather disaster to strike the country, Cyclone Gabrielle. Back then, News Talk's breakfast host Mike Hosking and his wife, early morning presenter Kate Hawksby, poo-pooed what they saw as overblown weather warnings. What we've done is whip ourselves into this extraordinary frenzy. I'm listening to your mate Chris from the Met Service. He's now talking about 100k winds as being like a, a hurricane. Well, he described it as ferocious. Anyone, anyone who lives in Wellington has lived in Wellington. 100k's is a breezy day. You've still got an outdoor <laughs> table at the cafe. I mean, what we've done is we've got ourselves into this mental state now where anything is... It, I'm we re- panic. They were joined in their jeering by News Talk's mid-morning host, Kerry Woodham, who bemoaned the timidity of Auckland schools that decided to close for the day of the cyclone. But what message does this send to our children? Yet again, their education must be sacrificed. 
for the greater good, be it COVID, be it floods, be it cyclones, there are greater priorities than education. As it turns out, Cyclone Gabrielle was a big deal. It killed 11 people, cut off whole communities and damaged and wrecked hundreds of homes. News Talk has received formal complaints over how some of its hosts minimised the unfolding disaster, even as the station billed itself as a source for cyclone news updates and civil defence information. Your official civil defence station, live from the News Talk ZB News Centre. It was criticised by commentators, including former New Zealand Herald editor Gavin Ellis, who had this advice for its editorial decision-makers. In normal times, they can thrive on contrarianism if they wish, but in times of crisis, they have a responsibility to concentrate on clear, concise, comprehensive information, their commercial interests, and to switch that culture off may be very difficult for them, but I think they've got to try. Given all that, you'd think the station might have changed tack this week as another front closed in on our shores. But despite the efforts of hosts like Barnett and others, some presenters followed a similar script to the one they used back in February. This is Hosking quickly assessing whether a storm update was worth taking seriously on Wednesday morning. Justin from the, um, who is it in from? The state of emergency people, the civil defence people. Oh, Wakako Tahi, is it all right? Take it seriously then. As floodwaters have receded, the Northland uh, State Highway Network is now open. That same morning, this is how he introduced an interview with Auckland Chamber of Commerce Chief Executive Simon Bridges. Another afternoon, though, of weather panic in Auckland as a local state of emergency was declared everyone scarp at home. And yet, I mean, was it really necessary or was it just a short downpour um, we overreacted to? While Bridges acknowledged authorities had difficult decisions to make given the disasters of Cyclone Gabrielle and the Auckland anniversary weekend floods, he played along with Hosking's premise. Yep, um, there was a, a worse set of floods that you underreacted to, but let's not treat this one more seriously than it needs to be treated. And that is exactly what happened yesterday, isn't it? It's the politics of being seen to be doing the right thing. And when you push back to those people, they go, oh, it's better safe than sorry. In Hosking's eyes, the media were catastrophizing the storm because, unlike him, they're obsessed with weather stories. Do you reckon we've become obsessed with weather? I blame the digital media, the Herald, the Stuff, the RNZs. I have never seen the media obsess about weather more. There are hundreds of stories about forecasts that may or may not come to pass, storms that may or may not happen, squalls that are coming in or not, and we've just got this mindset where everything's a disaster. It's true the weather is a big driver of traffic for our news organisations. In 2022, Stuff talked to meteorologist Ben Knoll, who said New Zealand has a good argument for being the most weather-obsessed country in the world. The article used some in-house statistics to buttress that claim, saying Stuff readers click on weather stories millions of times every month, including in summer when it's nice outside. But the media is also a vital source of information during weather disasters, and sometimes that can be life-saving. A few hours before Hosking started scoffing at the storm shutdowns with Simon Bridges, Kate Hawkesby tried a similar line of questioning with Heart of the City's Viv Beck. But unlike Bridges, Beck didn't accept that the authorities had been too cautious. Can we afford to keep bringing Auckland to a halt, though, when there's severe weather? 
Well, it's clearly the last thing the city needs, but it is what's happening. And I think the it, it depends. I mean, we can't do it willy-nilly, but I think yesterday was precautionary, and I think given there was a child missing up north and, and people have been badly affected again, I think most people I'm talking to believe it was an appropriate thing to do. As Beck said, a teenager was missing up north as Auckland's workers were heading home on Tuesday. The Whangare High School student was swept away during a class caving trip in Abbey Caves. He was later found dead. Over the last few days, news organisations covering that tragedy have questioned why the students were in the cave in the first place. This is Isabel Ewing on News Hub at 6, looking at whether the school's decision to go ahead with the outing lined up with its own policies. On the Whangarei Boys High School website, the Year 11 Outdoor Education Risk Assessment for Caving says, instructor to check weather leading up to trip and check water levels before trip if there has been rain. Postpone trip if water levels may be too high. On TVNZ's One News, this is how Simon Dallow introduced a segment on the teenager's death. Good evening. A monumental mistake which could have been much worse. That's what a parent of one of the students who made it out of the Abbey Caves told One News after the school outing that claimed the life of a fellow classmate. The victim, swept away by rising water, is tonight with Fano, who have thanked emergency services and the public for their support. The Whangarei Boys High School principal fronted up to One News today but couldn't answer why the trip went ahead despite those heavy rain warnings. Another news organisation that was critical of the school's decision-making was News Talk ZB. Where the newsmakers meet their match, it's Heather Duplessy-Allen Drive. News just through is that the search for the missing student in the Abbey Caves in Whangarei has been suspended until the morning. Brody Stone is a reporter for the Northern Advocate. Brody, why were they at the caves? I mean, wasn't there a heavy rain weather warning yesterday? We don't know anything until the investigation occurs. Obviously, there is a lot of angry people out there. This is every parent's worst nightmare, really. Heather Duplessy-Allen Drive. Heather Duplessy-Allen and others have a point. Heeding the warnings of forecasters and authorities could help stave off disaster. It's hard to see why anyone would ignore those warnings, even if they see them as a little bit too cautious. The reporting of the last few days has shown many people do understand the importance of listening to those warnings. On One News, reporter Isabel Prasad interviewed Aucklanders on how they were responding to the latest storm surge in light of the two natural disasters that hit the city earlier this year. Well, what's the most different is how fast we're moving this time. Um, it's foreseeing what's going to happen, making sure it doesn't happen. Just leave. Don't wait. The only difference I've made this round is how fast I'm responding to it. Before it was more like, a, oh, it's all right, and then the, the water's up to here. But this time it was actually a lot faster. I knew that it is quite serious. As those vox-popped Aucklanders said, it can be hard to tell as a layperson which low-pressure systems are going to fizzle out and which might send water up to your neck. It really is, despite the derision of some popular radio hosts, better to be safe than sorry. That message seems to be catching on with the wider public. But it's still not getting through the studio doors of the nation's most popular talk radio network, at least between the hours of 5 and 9am. Hayden Donnell there looking at hindsight-driven claims in the media that the powers that be might be too trigger-happy to declare emergencies these days and one radio host view that the media are amping up the weather drama even where he works.
Last weekend here on Media Watch, we looked at how our media were at fever pitch over the upcoming coronation of King Charles. And on Midweek Media Watch earlier this week on RNZ National, I looked back at the reaction to the Coronation Day coverage in our media and how you just can't please all of the people all of the time. Melissa kept saying he's getting coronated. I mean, get it right. It was an embarrassment. Also last Wednesday on Midweek Media Watch, we talked about the new podcast emerging from the closure of talk station Today FM and the radio station that's seeking Gen X music lovers and Gen Z ones with the same tunes. We also heard about RNZ releasing some of what was said at a now notorious farewell do by the Justice Minister, for which she later apologised, and our Prime Minister getting grilled by the BBC in the UK about republicanism, mecha fightery, and inevitably this. The sausage roll moment is really cool, actually. Word got round at home, and I get a lot of sausage rolls wherever I go at home in New Zealand at the moment, but to be presented them by the King and by the Prime Minister of the UK, uh, that's next level. That was on Midweek Media Watch, our weekly catch-up with Knights here on RNZ National. If you missed it, you'll find it on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website, our section of the RNZ app, or you'll find it in our podcast feed, available wherever you get your podcasts. While the Prime Minister was away in the UK meeting, greeting and snacking, stuff journalist Charlie Mitchell used some downtime to create some images of Chris Hipkins eating sausage rolls using the new generative AI technology. Now it's called generative because it creates content rather than just being a tool for us to make more ourselves, though no one who knows what Chris Hipkins actually looks like could possibly have believed that Charlie Mitchell's AI images were genuine and they also conclusively proved that AI doesn't have enough eye just yet to know what a sausage roll is. But German artist Boris Egdelson did pull it off recently when he won a prize at the Sony World Photography Awards for a photo which was entirely the work of AI. He says he did it to find out if competition judges were prepared for artificial images being passed off as real photos. They're not, he concluded. And on the spin-offs media podcast The Fold last week, Business Desk's tech writer Peter Griffin said they're already using AI for their journalism. Business Desk is already using uh, ChatGPT or the, the API to generate market reports. I mean, companies have been doing that for quite a while now, but this has made it that much easier. Um, I think Stuff is employing that. If you have a big publisher like Stuff that has has a massive database of stories going back many, many years. That's a hugely incredible resource. When you take the API for ChatGPT and you start interrogating that database, yes, it's full of biased information. That's just the nature of news. But in terms of looking for the insights to plan out your future coverage, amazing. Now, on the upside, AI could make some things more efficient for the media, but those spreading malicious misinformation could also benefit from it in a big way. And in the digital age, it's already getting harder to work out what we can trust online and what we need to be wary of. And according to New Zealand's biggest survey of our trust in news, which came out recently, 86% of us said we were worried about fake news. And based on recent news, our spy agencies are among them. 
Spy bosses fronted up to a Parliament Select Committee and in a rare move revealed three cases where the GCSB helped stop potential terror attacks. Worrying stuff there from TBNZ's Kushla Norman reporting on what the GCSB boss reported back to Parliament, the Acting Director-General of the SIS, also told Parliament that malign foreign influence is also being brought to bear on New Zealanders online. This is purely around the state trying to, in a coercive, disruptive, in a covert way, influence the behaviours of people in New Zealand, influencing their decision-making. Phil McKee named no names or nations, but his GCSB counterpart Andrew Hampton did when he told MPs that research has shown that in the lead-up to the occupation of Parliament a year ago, Kiwis were consuming more information than people in other countries, and specifically anti-vaccine stuff coming from Russia. What the government could or should do about all this was then put to the Prime Minister, Chris Hipkins. The GCSB can identify where misinformation is, you know, is, is coming into the country and so on. But what people choose to share on their Facebook pages or on Twitter um, are matters for each individual to make decisions about. Now, back in March 2018, two former editors in the US started an international service to identify outlets that were hosting and spreading misinformation. And when NewsGuard started to turn a profit two years later, CNN's media correspondent at the time, Brian Stelter, described it like this to his viewers. So what NewsGuard does, it has a set of journalistic standards, uh, a set of criteria that it applies to sites all across the World Wide Web. Using a team of close to 40 employees, the company tries to cut through the noise of misinformation and deception and helps advertisers do that uh, by letting them know when their ads are running on sites full of nonsense. NewsGuard conducted a study that found advertisers were spending nearly $2.6 billion on ads running on hoax sites, in many cases without the advertisers having any idea at all. Last month, NewsGuard co-founder Gordon Krovitz, the former publisher of the Wall Street Journal, was on the front page of the New York Times calling ChatGPT the most powerful tool for spreading misinformation that there's ever been on the internet. And now NewsGuard is in the vanguard of trying to fix that, effectively by using human journalists to try and teach AI to tell the truth. And the same week, NewsGuard announced it was going to expand into Australia and New Zealand. Well, NewsGuard's co-founder is Gordon Krovitz, and I asked him, how does it work? Will it really help push misinformation out of our media, and can it prune back the profits of those who encourage it? One of the great things about the Internet is that everybody can be a publisher. One of the great things about the Internet is that everybody can be a publisher. One of the terrible things about the Internet is that anybody can be a publisher. And to a news consumer, understanding that a site has high standards is important. We thought this was a journalistic problem, not really a technological problem. And so we brought to it a journalistic solution, which is to identify nine basic apolitical criteria of journalistic practice. Does a site disclose its ownership, for example? Does it have a corrections policy? And to apply those nine criteria. And we have what we call a nutrition label, which comes alongside the score for news consumers to learn all they want to learn about a source of news that they see in their news feed or in their search result. Partners like Microsoft that have integrated our ratings into some of their products. We also have a browser extension. So if you're using Chrome or Safari or Firefox or Edge, uh, consumers can sign up themselves. Um, it's free for people using the Edge browser. And then we have a special program for libraries around the world. Librarians can download NewsGuard for free. 
what happens? Do I get an alert or something on the screen to say, uh, by the way, the site you're using, we've taken a look at it. It's trustworthiness score on the nine values is not great, this percentage, so beware. Is that what the users will experience? Exactly what they will see. They'll see alongside news stories, a rating for the domain, for the website, and that'll be a score from zero to 100. Um, and a user can hover over that score and see a pop-up that describes the site in some detail. And then if they want to learn even more, they can read the full nutrition label. And I guess this isn't a tool that could actually filter out uh, unreliable or low score sites. Uh, it's not uh, you know, an instrument of censorship. Yeah. So, you know, we're all journalists ourselves. So we, of course, oppose uh, censorship in all of its forms. We do work with the, the biggest global news aggregators as they consider adding a new source. Is this a generally reliable source? Should they trust stories from that particular source? Should they include it in their aggregation? But to a consumer, really, the way to think about this is Crazy Uncle Willie has shared with me a news story from a source I've never heard of in my Facebook feed. Let me take a look to see what NewsGuard says about it. Oh, my goodness, it got a, you know, a 15 out of 100. And maybe let Crazy Uncle Willie know that this source also published some other crazy conspiracy theories. That would be kind of a typical use case for a news card for a news consumer. Yeah, and then up to how persuasive you are with crazy Uncle Willie, I guess, whether that uh, has an impact on his uh, news habits into the future. However, if you are one of those that, when asked, say they're concerned, they probably hope that their news services would do this work on their behalf and weed out the bad information before it gets to them. Yeah, and in fact, more than 90% of the people who've accessed uh, NewsGuard ratings are getting it through an intermediary such as a Microsoft. And for example, the new chatbots, uh, companies like OpenAI with their ChatGPT and Microsoft's Bing has Bing Chat. Bing actually uses our data to help train the AI so that if people do a Bing chat, they'll often get right in the response to a topic in the news. Um, it will say there are a couple of different sides to this story, just the kind of use of our data that we were hoping for to be able to give people who are curious about a conspiracy theory they might have heard about or a topic in the news, for them to be able to do a quick search and get real context. If the AI companies fail to train their models with the difference between reliable information and unreliable information, then it has the potential to be the most severe source of misinformation the world has ever seen. AI models will create highly persuasive, well-written radio scripts or newspaper articles um, that are written beautifully, perfect grammar, eloquent, and completely false. And the machines don't know the difference unless they're trained with the data. So that's why we're quite pleased to be working with Microsoft and Bing, which does use our data to train uh, Bing chat. We're very concerned about services that don't have any training for the AI. They end up repeating misinformation. A team of analysts at NewsGuard tested the new version of ChatGPT. That's the one that's gotten a lot of publicity. We tested it on 100 false narratives in the news um, to see how many of those 100 it would spread. And it spread all 100, 100 for 100, uh, which surprised us because the earlier version of that same AI from January, it was called GPT 3.5, only spread 80 out of those 100. So the AI can get even worse as the developers think they're making it better. So I do think that um, misinformation remains a quite serious problem. I'm encouraged that with the right training, machines can do better. 
In the meantime, while it's still humans doing most of the work on news literacy, we're delighted to be able to offer more information to news consumers about who's feeding them the news, whether it's in Facebook or on Twitter or YouTube or, or in search. Okay, your reference to persuasive radio scripts being written by the machines there sent a little chill through me, but uh, I've recovered my poise again, so that's all good. Uh, but Gordon, some worrying news in the information here announcing the launch of, of NewsGuard in this part of the world. Almost one in five news sites, says this media release, Almost one in five news uh, sites that NewsGuard rated in Australia and in New Zealand got untrustworthy scores. Uh, but how did you or does NewsGuard go about actually assessing the Australian and New Zealand sites? So do, do you actually have, for example, staff based, if not here, then in Australia, actively looking and scrutinising big name news sites in this part of the world? We do. And um, what we do as we launch in each country is we will have rated all the news and information sources that account for 95% of engagement in each country. And when we say that almost one in five of the sources get low scores, as you pointed out, Colin, it's far below the United States, which is at a whopping 46%, or France, which is at 33%. Well, I've seen some sample assessments for Australian news sites. But in the future, will we be able to see uh, NewsGuard's similar assessments of big names in the New Zealand market, like, for example, our own at uh, RNZ, Radio New Zealand? Well, I'm very pleased to be able to tell you that Radio New Zealand has a 95 out of 100 is one criterion, um, I think, having to do with um, giving information about your content creators um, that you miss. But 95 out of 100 is a very high score. There are sites in New Zealand that take a name that sounds like a trusted source, alter it just a little bit, and then they will publish misinformation. So one of the sites we rated in New Zealand, for example, is called the Daily Telegraph, not Daily Telegraph based in London, but dailytelegraph.co.nz, which is unrelated to the well-known Daily Telegraph and publishes Russian disinformation. It reprints articles from RT and Sputnik, which are both Kremlin operated disinformation. And just finally, Gordon, how will we know when if this is cutting through here in New Zealand? One of the metrics that we use is about a quarter of uh, websites we've rated worked with our analysts to improve their score by improving their journalistic practices. And we would hope and expect that that would be true in New Zealand and Australia. That has turned out to be a powerful way to separate generally trustworthy sources of news from ones that consumers really should proceed with caution before relying upon. That was former Wall Street Journal publisher Gordon Krovitz, who's a co-founder of NewsGuard, a US-based outfit that rates the reliability of news services in several countries around the world, and which, as we heard there, has now set up a base in Sydney, which is also running the rule over the output of significant online news operations here. And finally on Media Watch this weekend, some mixed messages from the media this past week about our top national men's rugby competition. After last weekend's Super Rugby Pacific Round, the Herald's Gregor Paul wrote this. When it comes to good ideas in Super Rugby, the last week has highlighted that New Zealand might have more of them than Australia. Like what? Well, bringing in the Fijian Ndrua, who'd just had their fourth win after beating a full-strength Hurricanes team, said Gregor Paul, hours before Moana Pacifica almost scored a sensational upset win over the Blues. Over at Stuff, rugby writer Robert Van Royen agreed. 
For all the negative chat surrounding Super Rugby Pacific, the competition sure got it right by including the Indrua. They play some of the most entertaining rugby you could ask for. All good. And the same day, Stuff reported that Andrew Hoare, the chief executive of the Blues, had said Super Rugby Pacific is potentially becoming like Brazilian soccer. Now, Brazilian skillful soccer is admired all around the world, but that's not what Andrew Hoare meant. He said that, like Brazil, New Zealand was selling rugby talent off and only bringing it back for international matches, and he said that was because New Zealand rugby was really invested in the All Blacks brand above all else. Now, the same day, the Herald and the Otago Daily Times ran this headline from a former All Black coach. Black Ferns and All Blacks mentor Wayne Smith slams state of rugby. And Stuff's headline had this. Coaching guru Wayne Smith blasts the state of men's rugby after turning off Super Rugby game. And that story said that the Black Ferns and All Blacks coaching maestro had lambasted the state of rugby recently and stopped watching a game on TV for the first time out of pure frustration. And the next day, the Herald's contrarian Chris Ratchew weighed in under this headline. Wayne Smith is right. Rugby is unwatchable. And over at TVNZ, digital sport reporter Patrick McKendry was moved to write this. If Wayne Smith, the professor, is finding it tediously predictable, then there's not much hope for the rest of us. Or indeed, our children. Later on News Talk ZB, Drive host Heather Duplessy Allen joined the Rolling Mall. It is now so bad that even one of the most gifted coaches of a generation is saying he cannot bear to watch the game that he loves. Now, isn't that a massive wake-up call? And soon after that same night, News Hub at Six had this reaction. Coaching guru Smith has revealed he recently became so frustrated while watching a game, he switched off to watch a nature documentary. He suggested tinkering with the rules, but as Alex Chapman reports, his ideas received a mauling in Crusaders country. Joe Moody's face said it all. Oh, shit. What a ridiculous save. So what did Wayne Smith actually say that prompted such loose language from the Crusaders' loose head? Well, here at Media Watch, we were surprised to hear that Wayne Smith had slammed and lambasted rugby on an official All Blacks podcast, where you'd expect that a much more positive vision of the game would be the aim. And when we tuned in, more than an hour and a quarter of this podcast with Wayne Smith went by with no lambasting, no venting, or no slamming from him, until this. I turned off for the first time in my life at halftime, and I went to watch... Um uh, program on the lions in Serengeti. <laughs> I watched an animal documentary. I was so go. frustrated with it. I don't know if it got any better in the second half, but um, probably did. But I just thought, uh, it's not a game I want to watch at the moment when it's like that. Not exactly a spittle-flecked rant, was it? Wayne Smith went on to say more about that stop-start force versus Highlanders game and overly officious officiating slowing rugby down in general. But he didn't say that Super Rugby Pacific was actually unwatchable. No one got slammed or lambasted. In his opinion piece, the Herald's Chris Ratchew concluded that for day-in, day-out entertainment, rugby sucks on and off the field. Well, Media Watch doesn't know much about the on-field stuff, but one of the off-field problems seems to be commentators keen for content during game-free weekdays overreacting to any opinion that anyone with a profile in the game dares to offer about it, however mildly it's actually expressed. Well, that's all we have for you on the media this weekend, but we'll be back with more on the media after the 10pm news next Wednesday night during nights with Midweek Media Watch, and then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.